0: You're listening to golf. Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved or advice they offer golf. Yeah. Provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, Let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew.
1: Our next guest has what many golf enthusiasts consider to be a dream job. As a professional caddy on the PGA Tour for the past 23 years, John Wood has carried for Hunter Mahan, Kevin Sutherland, Mark Calcavecchia, and now is in his fourth year on the bag for Matt Kuchar. In addition to scores of regular tour events and major tournaments behind the ropes, John has been part of seven Ryder Cup teams, six President Cup teams, and the 2016 Summer Olympics. It's safe to say that few people know more about the game, the players, the personalities, the golf courses, and what it takes to win on the tour. In fact, John Wood is recognized as one of the most respected and knowledgeable caddies on the PGA Tour. He's going to share his story of how he got started and what life is really like for him as a caddy, as well as some guidance for people who aspire to follow a similar career path. What I find most interesting about John is that he's somewhat of a Renaissance man. He reads a lot and even managed a bookstore in Sacramento before he became a caddy. He also enjoys the outdoors and camping, but his real passion is music. And in fact, John recently wrote, produced, and published his first album of original songs, which is entitled Record 66 and available on SoundCloud. And he'll talk about all of that. So, John, welcome to Golf. Yeah, it's an honor to have you on the podcast today.
2: Gordon, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here.
1: Okay. Listen, why don't we start with at the beginning? You know, I've read about your position as manager at a bookstore, but what's your backstory? How did you get there? Where'd you grow up? How'd you get into golf? Can you give us a two-minute version?
2: Sure, absolutely. You know, I grew up playing all sports when I was a kid. Baseball, far and away being my favorite. I lived for baseball and played, you know, all through Little League and Senior League and freshman year in high school as well. And then in between my freshman and sophomore years in high school, I started really getting into golf. Took a few lessons, not a lot, but I got, you know, pretty good pretty quickly. And the school I was attending at the time didn't have a golf program and besides baseball and golf for the same season. So you really couldn't play both. But there was a Jesuit high school in Sacramento had a great golf program and someone associated with the program just, you know, saw me playing or practicing one day and asked a little bit of my backstory and, you know, basically asked if I wanted to go to Jesuit and play golf there. So I really, it was a tough decision because I loved baseball so much at the time and had all my friends and that I had grown up with that I was going to be leaving baseball and all my friends to go do this new thing. But it felt like a great opportunity and the right thing to do. So that sophomore year, I transferred over to Jesuit and started playing golf there. Played golf for three years there. And really enjoyed it. I still have some friends that I play golf with to this day. And then went to UC Berkeley briefly to play golf. (laughs) I played golf for one year there and just got kind of burned out on everything. You know, didn't stay there. Came back to Sacramento and went went back to a junior college, but kind of quit golf at that point. I got really burned out on it, but was still interested in it. You know, was kind of bouncing around and doing a few different things. And, you know, I was, I'd finished school and was, going to not really knowing what I wanted to do and ended up working at Tower Books for a while, which was the old Tower Records substation. But I ended up managing a Tower Books in Sacramento for a couple years. And then a friend of mine from California, from Sacramento, Kevin Sutherland, was in his second year on tour, and we were just out hitting balls one day, and he asked if I'd be interested in coming out and trying caddy for him. So I gave it a little thought and thought, you know, why not? How many chances do you get to do something like this? At the time, I had no idea it was going to turn into a career, honestly. I thought I'd do it for a year or two and then get back to the real world. But I just fell in love with it. I love the travel. I love being part of competition. I love tra- seeing courses and meeting people that in a million years, I never would have thought I would get the opportunity to do. So something I really just fell into, you know, that was 23 years ago. So <laughs> something I thought I'd do for a year or two has turned into uh, quite a career.
1: Yeah. So, but is your story unusual? I mean, how many people just kind of happen to be in the right place at the right time? Don't most caddies kind of aspire to be on the tour? And how did the other caddies get there?
2: It's changed a lot in the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years. Before, when I started, it felt like there was a cadre of tour caddies that, you know, were there week in, week out, Whether they had the same player every week or not, they were tour caddies and they traveled. Even if they didn't have a job, they'd try and get a job in the parking lot if someone didn't have somebody for the week. These days, it's completely changed. and Most of the guys, rather than find a tour caddy and become friendly and understand them, they bring out their own guy and have them learn how to caddy. So It might be a brother. It might be a good friend that they've played a lot of golf with over the years. It might be a college teammate. But it's really changed in that sense that, like I said, it used to be you'd come out if you were a player and get your card, get your status, and then you come find a tour caddy. Now, you kind of bring somebody out and they kind of learn on the job. So it's definitely changed over the years.
1: Yeah. That's like the Jordan Spieth story, right?
2: Sure. And there's a million of them. I mean, there's it's really kind of how it works these days.
1: Yeah. But the old timer, the old guard, I mean, many of them are still carrying,
2: right? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, think of Fluff. Gosh, he's been out here. <laughs> we had some jokes at the uh, the Ryder Cup this year, Fluff being the caddy captain with Jim Furyk being the captain. And, uh, you know, we had our own little caddy team room at the hotel. We were talking about some of Fluff's first jobs and joking. Was it old Tom Morris or young Tom Morris that was his first bag? So <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a handful of the old guards still out here.
1: Yeah. What is the average tenure, do you think? I mean, do most guys burn out or... Because we're going to talk a little bit about demands on your time and your life being a caddy. But is there an average length of time that people stay? It's a good question. You know, there's a lot
2: of guys who are in and out, you know, you see them for a year and then they're gone. And then other guys are around 10, 15, 20 years. So I would guess on average, five to seven years, I would guess. But like I said, there's quite a few who work more than that and quite a few who are in, in and out. You barely get time to know them.
1: Yeah. What do you think makes a caddy great? I mean, for example, do you need to be a scratch golfer? Is it the ability to read greens? Do you need to be in great shape? And what combination of all of those things?
2: Yeah, combination of all. You don't need to be a great player, but you need to understand how to play. You really got to be prepared and think ahead of the game. You know, I like to say, you know, a good caddy, every time his player is hitting a shot, be it a tee shot or a bunker shot or an iron shot. Every good caddy, I think, probably has the answers to five questions that never get asked. Constantly trying to stay ahead of the game, thinking, okay, let's see, Matt's hitting this tee shot, and I've walked up to the tee thinking, okay, what is it going to be to that bunker? What is it going to be over the bunker? What's the wind doing? What is it going to be through on the left side? What's that going to leave him? So as I'm walking to a shot, I'm really trying to prepare and have everything in my mind that he might ask. So when he does ask one of those, I'm ready. I'm not fumbling. I'm not pulling out my yardage book. I'm not sounding doubtful. Uh, I'm ready. I've thought about it. And I know the answer. So I think most caddies, like I said, have the answers to five questions that never get asked for every single shot. So you do a lot of preparation. You got to be confident in how you talk to your player. You can't hem and haw. You can't you know, question yourself and make him think you're questioning yourself. Right or wrong, you've got to speak really confidently to him about what your belief is and what the shot is to hit. You got to be able to communicate well with your thoughts. Like I said, you can't be stumbling over words and questioning yourself when he asks you a question. You got to build a good trust with each other. And really, the only way to build a good trust is to be right a lot. Okay. <laughs> the only way I think the player can learn to trust you is if, you know, a few times. You give him a read or you give him a club or a wind direction or a bit of advice on how he needs to hit a shot. And it turns out to be right. And hopefully you you build up a rapport that way and and a bank of really good decisions. So, you know, no one's perfect. Eventually you're going to make a poor decision. You're going to give him bad advice. That just happens. So when that happens, he doesn't, you know, think, gosh, this is turning into a habit. You know, it's just, no, it's a one-off thing rather than being wrong all the time. You're right mostly, and occasionally you're going to be wrong. That's just the game.
1: The old school view on caddies was, the adage was, show up and shut up.
2: Sure, absolutely. And, uh, that was, uh, uh, it's changed. <laughs> I think you can tell by some of the conversations that are had on screen during tight moments and tournaments, that's really not the case anymore. And there's a handful of players who don't want a lot of information anymore still, but for the most part, You know, there's a lot more that goes into it now than even when I started. You know, it's just a ton more information to get through quickly, understand, and be able to communicate that to your player.
1: Is it ever appropriate for Caddy to discuss a player's swing or technique? I mean, if you see something, if the ball is too far forward or he's doing something out of character, can you speak up?
2: Absolutely. You got to be careful about it. But, you know, you got to think most of the time you're with your player when he's with his coach. Matt works with a great teacher named Chris O'Connell out of Dallas. And so you're there the entire time when they're working, when he's out at a tournament and they're working, you're there, you're listening, you're trying to pay attention and understand and asking questions of the teacher. Because as the caddy, you're the only one to be able to give advice during a round. It's not like other sports where Chris can walk out into the fairway and say, hey, Matt, you're doing this. So if I notice Matt struggling with something, hopefully... I've got a good idea in speaking with Chris and listening to them work together what it might be and I won't phrase it like hey Matt you're doing this I'll phrase it like you know hey Matt remember when Chris suggested something like this when the ball flight was doing this maybe that's it let's give that a try or you know if I see something obvious I'll say it but you have to be careful about it because sometimes when if Matt's playing well if he's scoring well and maybe not hitting it as well as he wants you really don't want to step in at that point and say hey i see this. A perfect example of that would be, you know, when Matt almost won the open a couple of years ago and lost to Jordan. You know, it, Matt did not have his A ball striking at all. I would say it was probably a B at best, but he was managing his game so well and he was able to control the ball. It wasn't like he was hitting every shot flush exactly like he wanted to, but he was in such a good place working his way around a golf course. It wasn't a point where you wanted to say something and make, have him start thinking about his golf swing instead of putting up a score, which is what he was doing that week. So it's something you do because you do pay attention, but you have to be careful about it.
1: Your relationships with players goes beyond on-course you know, counsel. Very often caddies have personal relationships with their players. Is there any risk involved in that and getting too close to the player you're carrying for?
2: There can be. You're around each other so much during a tournament week. I mean, you're thinking about, you know, probably out of the course, six out of the seven days on average, you know, six to seven hours a day. That's a lot of time and a lot of time around each other under pressure. So you have to know when to back away. And even, you know, sometimes you'll get invited to dinner. And I love Matt's family to death. Sibby and his two boys, I absolutely adore and love being around But sometimes you have to say, you know, you might want to do it, but sometimes you have to say no, just to, you know, get a little time away from each other. And it's nothing personal whatsoever. It's just kind of, all right, we've just spent seven stressful hours together. Let's take a break and start fresh tomorrow. You know, a lot of that you need to know about their lives as well, because sometimes it's something that might be going right on the golf course might have nothing to do with golf and you need to be able to understand that. And also, one of the things I talk about a lot, I firmly believe, is sometimes in big pressure situations, it's just as important. The weights on the tees and the walks in between the shots can be more important than the actual shots because you got to relax them and keep their mind off of golf if they're feeling too much pressure and be able to talk about, you know, the game last night or what sport the kids are doing today or what Sibby's been up to or a book you're reading or a book they've been reading. You know, it's important to have that knowledge of what they're interested in outside of golf. Just to be able to five hours on a golf course is a long time to talk only about golf. You need to have that knowledge too. It's very helpful.
1: Yeah. And Kutcher has a reputation as being kind of a jokester. Does he use that as a way to relieve stress or is that just part of his personality? I mean, what? Uh...
2: <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both. Coots loves to have fun. He loves playing golf. He loves being on a golf course, you know, in any situation, whether it's just messing around with his boys or playing with some friends at home or, you know, in the last round of the Masters. He loves golf. He enjoys the game, and he doesn't want to make it miserable. I mean, a lot of guys, it's so just work. With Matt, it's work, it's fun, it's lifestyle. He just loves to be around, and I think he wants to make it fun. And I think guys like playing with Matt for that very reason. They know they're going to have some funny conversations, and he's kind of like Fred Couples back in the day. Everybody loved playing with Fred because he was so... Easy to get along with and so relaxed, he kind of relaxed you. So I think Matt's kind of the same in that sense.
1: Yeah. Does Cooch ever get mad at you for any reason?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, Matt's, he's very fair. I mean, he's never gotten on me. I'm sure he's, you know, been upset with a, a decision I may have made or talked him into that didn't work out quite right. And that's, you know, if he didn't, I think there was something wrong. But yeah, he's definitely got a temper. He maybe doesn't show it as much as most guys. And he's probably harder on himself than on me, for sure.
1: Yeah. Do you have any good stories about club selection where you wanted to go with a four and he wanted to go with a five? And, you know, one way or the other, do you have any, any good stories you can share?
2: You know, that it's funny. <laughs> when we Most of the time, I would say, you know, 95% of the time, you're on the same club. You're on the same shot. Things just dictate a certain thing. You know, it's obvious what it's going to be. Whenever we are you know, in disagreement, or I have a different idea and he has a different idea. I'll try and have reasons ready. You know, I think it's seven and here's why. Two holes ago, you had this yardage, the same wind, and we hit the seven iron and it went this far. So that's why I think it's this time. And it might, you know, click and say, yeah, you're right. Other times you might feel like it's a certain shot, but he's not feeling like hitting that shot. So there are options, you know, it's a big eight's going to get there and a little seven's going to be fine as well. So a lot of times you kind of got to read him and let him make the decision on what shot he wants to play.
1: Yeah. Do you ever factor in adrenaline? I mean, if he's oh, in, a, for sure. Of,
2: yeah. No question. There's a couple holes in particular, like, you know, 16 at Phoenix, you know, we get there on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you know, the shot's just naturally going to have five to seven extra yards on it because of adrenaline, that crowd and that situation. It's just electric. Same thing with like 17 at sawgrass. I think typically, as long as the wind's not into you, if it's no wind or downwind, the ball just goes there. So you definitely read, you know, adrenaline into it. Same way with, you know, anytime you're in in contention, the ball tends to go a little bit farther, not crazy, but if they're in contention, typically they're playing well and they're swinging well and they can draw on some reserves and add a little bit if they need to. So adrenaline's adrenaline is definitely part of your decision out there.
1: So since you mentioned the 16th at Phoenix, have you ever competed in that caddy race?
2: Never. Okay. Do you have a <laughs> point of view on I'm it? very anti-caddy race. <laughs> okay. I think it's demeaning, actually. I, that's I, what I think, too. I just feel like it's, <laughs> you know, we're out, that's one of the hardest clubs to pull and you're out there grinding away and trying to get the right club in your guy's hand and hopefully he hits a good shot. And, you know, the last thing I think I want to do, and the last thing I think he would want to see is me running with his clubs through the desert, up a hill, and I don't think it's, just like you, I think it's demeaning.
1: Yeah. Let's switch to the business side uh, for a second. Are you are caddies independent contractors, or are they actually employed by their players?
2: I would say 99% are independent contractors, and I'm not even sure that that might be low. It might be everybody. My guess is there's probably a couple that are under contracts, but almost Universally, they're independent contractors.
1: Okay. Now, I won't ask you to share what your arrangement is or what the, you know, who's making more than anybody else, but can you describe in really general terms what the typical compensation arrangements are?
2: Sure. Most guys have, you know, a weekly salary, which you can pretty much take care of your travel expenses out of your weekly salary. So usually no one's, you know, losing money. Even when you miss a cut, hopefully your salary has covered your expenses for the week. And then very basically, you get paid a percentage of whatever they make out of the purse. However, the better they finish, the higher your percentage. So, you know, you've got some skin in the game. That's basically, I think, a pretty universal deal. I think most people have something very similar to that.
1: Yeah. Now, I know that the Association for Professional Tour Caddies just dropped a lawsuit that involved, uh, you know, endorsements, wearing the bibs covering up logos for endorsement arrangements. So... Do most caddies have endorsement arrangements for logos on their sleeves or?
2: I wouldn't say most, but quite a few. I'd say most of the top players, say the top 50 in the world, maybe more than that, all would share some endorsements with their players. And usually it's something, it's part of your player's deal that maybe his agent or the company wants the caddy to be involved in as well. So, you know, Matt's sponsored by RBC and Bridgestone and Skechers and Workday and I am therefore, you know, carry all their logos as well when I'm playing. I wear a bridge or when I'm catting, you know, I wear a Bridgestone hat, Sketcher shoes, and have Workday and, and RBC logos on my shirt. So usually they're part of your player's deal. Sometimes, you know, guys get stuff outside of that, like Steve Williams used to have the Valvoline on his sleeve. But it's something you would always want to clear with your player and your player's agent if you had somebody come to you outside of their normal sponsorships. You wouldn't just say yes. You would have to clear it with your player and his agent, make sure there's nothing competing in his endorsements that you might be looking to do. But that's basically how it would work.
1: Okay. Now, I know some caddies go on the speaking tour, you know, and talk to youth groups and other sorts of venues. Do you do that? Have you done that in the past?
2: You know, I have. I'm a horrible businessman. I've never charged <laughs> anything for Oh, <laughs> I've, Jesus. I've done a lot of junior programs, a lot of junior groups here in Sacramento, and I feel like I could definitely charge, but I've always felt like it's you know some sort of giving back or trying to give back something, and I don't want it to be I can go speak to a family who's belongs to a country club who's got a kid who plays there and who could afford to pay it and you know an, another kid who's a muni guy who which what I was growing up whose parents might not be able to afford it not be able to attend. So I've never charged. If I ever did one, you know, for a company or for a group of adults, which I'm sure I will at some point, I'm sure I'll charge then. But for the juniors, I like to just do it for free. I enjoy it as much as they do, probably.
1: You seem to have a soft spot in your heart for kids because I've seen a lot of pictures of you online. You know, I saw one, you playing your guitar in front of a group of kids. And I know you wrote a song recently for a young boy. Is that true? Am I
2: I, I do. I love kids. I don't have any of my own, but you know, I feel like if I'm at a party, I'll always end up at the kids' table or out back <laughs> with the dogs in general. So I love kids. I love being around them and I love their enthusiasm. And I, honestly, I get as much, if not more, out of them than they would ever learn from me.
1: Changing subjects. Do you need to belong to the association for professional tour caddies? You don't have
2: to, no. When James Edmondson started this a few years ago, it's really a, a different we used to have a caddy association. It never really did anything. It was just kind of part you joined and you were part of it, but it never really did anything. But the one that's up and running now has gone a long way and they've done a lot of stuff for us in terms of better working conditions and working on better healthcare. This one is, I think is, I would wonder why you wouldn't want to be a member of it because it has done so much for us in the last five years, probably.
1: Yeah. You know, I mentioned the lawsuit earlier and flip side of that was even though they dropped the case, you ended up with getting much better health care benefits from what I understand as a result of that suit.
2: Yeah. And there's, you know, we're still working on more. The president of it, Scott Sajanak, is really doing a wonderful job trying to to get together a group health plan that would really benefit us all. And he's really busted his butt on it. So um, I think we're getting closer and closer to something even better.
1: Okay, let me touch on a sensitive topic. You've carried for four tour players over the past twenty three years. So how do those player transitions and I have that in quote quotes work I mean, are there ever hard feelings when those relationships end?
2: Sure, inevitably, there are. I've been lucky all of mine have been you know pretty easy, and I've remained friends with everybody that I've worked for in the past. It can be uncomfortable depending on how it works out. If the player fires the caddy or if the caddy decides to leave and move on and look for something better. But it definitely can be contentious. It can be uncomfortable. Like I said, I've been lucky in all my switches. Not that there have been a lot, but have all been, you know, mutual decisions or at least if they weren't mutual, it was an easy transition and I remain friends. And, you know, when I see him, Kevin or Calc or Hunter, you know, I'm still, you know, very friendly with all of them.
1: Yeah. Is it true that if a player, let's say, hasn't been doing well for a while, that they're looking for a convenient scapegoat and the caddy just kind of is the baby that gets run out with the bathwater? Yeah. That-
2: yeah. I mean, yeah. it's definitely, and it might not even be anything the caddy's done. Sometimes you just need a change. You know, Mark Calcavecchia. before I worked for him full-time, he used to use a rotation of guys just because for that very fact, he didn't want it to get stale. And he had a group, of really good kid, probably five to eight caddies that he'd rotate through. And, you know, a week that Kevin Sutherland wasn't playing and, and Calc was, you know, he'd call me and ask if I could work. And he'd get guys like Joe LaCava or John Burke uh, or Bones to work off weeks for him.
1: And I'm also curious to know, you're a great caddy, and you kind of, you're you recognized throughout the industry as being a really great caddy, certainly in the upper echelon. Are you ever recruited? Does a player ever try to steal a caddy from another player?
2: I'm sure it's happened. I've never been recruited, basically, when I was working for somebody else, I think most players would see that as...
1: (laughs) Not well well received,
2: right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think if there was interest, I would think most players would go to that other player and say, hey, I don't know how you guys are doing together, if you guys are both happy with the job, but, you know... If you wouldn't mind, I would love to talk to so-and-so, you know, about maybe working for me or making a change. I don't yeah. think there's many behind-the-back, you know, catty stealings going on.
1: Okay. Do the relationships always start with a trial period to see how, you you know, say whether there's chemistry?
2: Not necessarily. I think if you don't know each other very well, I think that's probably the case. Absolutely. You agree to do three events or five events and see how it goes. But other times, like when Kooch and I started together, You know, we knew each other so well from being in so many team rooms together. You know, Hunter and Matt were on a lot of President's Cups and Ryder Cups together. We'd played a lot together. So there wasn't really a trial period. He just basically hired me at that point. And I I knew Matt well enough to know that I wasn't, I didn't want a trial period either. I was ready to go to work for him. So, and, and, you know, like recently, Zach Johnson and Damon split up. We've been together for 15 years. Yeah. And I've heard that Zach has hired Brett Waldman, and I don't think that's a, a trial period at all. You know, I think he's got – Waldman's a – Brett's a great caddy. Zach knows that. He's been around him to know he's a good caddy. He works hard, and he knows his stuff. And so I'm sure that's, a, and again, a situation where they've just agreed to work together rather than a trial period.
1: Yeah. Now, your season is long. I mean, it runs from January through the fall or longer, which gives caddies a very small window for other things in life, to have a life – so how difficult is it for caddies to have a spouse, partner, kids, you know, a personal life when they're away from home so much?
2: You know, it's a trade-off. I don't think it's that difficult. I think if you're with a good player and making a pretty good living, I don't think it's that difficult because, yeah, you are gone quite a lot, you know, 25 to 30 weeks out of the year. The trade-off is when you're home, you are home completely. You don't have an 8 9-to-5 job to go to. You can be there 24 hours a day, you know, around half the year, maybe a little bit less than half the year. Not to mention there, you know, during the summertime, your wife and kids can come out and spend weeks with you out on tour. And so I don't think it's not ideal maybe, but I think there's good parts to it as well.
1: Yeah. Do you play golf when you're not
2: the You know, the I played a lot growing up and played <clears throat> in college and a little bit after that these days, it doesn't do it for me. I spend so <laughs> much time on a golf course. I don't want to be on one when I've got time off. There's too much other stuff I enjoy doing. So I'll go out occasionally and, you know, work with a junior player or a college player or something. But in terms of actually playing golf, it's very, very rare for me. I get so frustrated by it because I see all these <laughs> beautiful, perfect golf shots all day right. long and come home and then start watching some of mine and going, what's that?
1: <laughs> exactly. So what is the most common complaint that tour caddies have, unrelated to their players, but about the job in general?
2: These days, I don't know what you would have a lot to complain about. We're treated so well at every event. It's a wonderful job. If you've got a good player who treats you well, there is not much to complain about. I'd say sometimes the tough thing maybe would be travel arrangements at major events can be pretty difficult because everything gets so expensive and so booked early. And, you know, we try and get a group of guys together and rent houses in those cases. But sometimes making, you know, travel week in, week out, you know where you're staying. You stay the same place every year. You rent the same kind of cars and um, you eat at the same restaurants. But sometimes at majors, it can be a bit of a struggle to arrange travel and, and get a place to stay.
1: Yeah. When you travel, for example, with Kuchar, do you stay in the same hotel?
2: No. Um, no, very rarely. But recently, I've kind of done more. I don't know if people know of Home Away or VRBO, which are kind of vacation rentals. I've done a lot more of those lately, which are great. I don't, you know, you get your own basically an apartment or something or a condo or something like that for a very reasonable price. And it's, it's kind of nicer than being in a hotel room, which is usually one little room. So I make my own arrangements. There's been a few times when Matt and Sibby have rented a house and they've had room and they've asked me to stay with them. And that's been a blast. But for the most part, we don't stay in the same places.
1: Yeah. So that's a big part of the job, whether you do it yourself or you have a spouse or someone else do it, or making the the arrangements, because there's a lot of logistics and making sure that you are standing on the first tee
2: at your point of time. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I would say typically a caddy would be at a site before their player. I know if we're going to a new course, I want to get there at least a day before Matt you know, to get all my homework done before he even steps on the first tee, just so we're not out there wasting a practice round trying to learn the course. You know, I try and get there a day early, do all my homework and have an idea just so I can tell him in the first practice round so we can start preparing right away rather than figuring the course out.
1: Do you walk a course even if you've played it several times? Always.
2: Yeah, Yeah. always. And it's just habit. I don't know that a lot of the newer guys do it as much because the yardage books these days are so spectacular. I mean, Mark Long, who used to work for Fred Funk, does most of our yardage books these days. And honestly, you could go blind and be probably completely fine. But for me, it's habit. I like seeing it, even if the course hasn't changed at all. Just things like seeing how thick the rough is, how firm the course seems to be, um, are the greens in good shape or not, you know, just those things can make a difference too. So more than anything, it's habit, but I just like seeing it before Matt sees it.
1: Do you go out before every round just to see how the pin positions have
2: changed? No, not before every round. I usually, there's a couple places I will go look at pins, Augusta being one of them. But a lot of times with how much coverage there is now, you're better off, you know, sitting in the caddy room or back at your hotel watching on TV than going out and actually looking at the pins because you can see so much more. You see so many shots, so many more greens, how the balls are reacting than actually going and looking yourself. But there's a few that you want to go check out before.
1: Yeah. Do caddies share information with each other?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I-, I think everybody's got kind of a group of friends they hang out with. For me, it's been, you know, Bones, a lot of my career, he and I were great friends and we'd stay together a lot. Cubby, Joe LaCava, Paul Tasori. There's always that point where we were sitting down somewhere and say, hey, did you see this pin on seven? Do you think it's really there Or do you think it's really here and you'll talk about stuff like that? Or, you know, if you've played in the morning and you've got a buddy in the afternoon, you know, you'll share information, you know, in between him going out and you finishing. You know, it's a friendly competition and, you know, it's something you share that stuff pretty freely, I'd say.
1: Yeah. Are there any dicks out there though?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get along with almost everybody. There's a few, you know, maybe not wouldn't want to spend time with it and go to dinner, but uh, <laughs> you don't have
1: to name names <laughs>
2: for the most part. I, I mean, I think most of them are pretty good guys and I get along with most of them.
1: Okay. You know, it appears Cooch won in Mexico last month. Was it? Mm-hmm. Was it? Yeah. So he's off to a great start, it appears. And he's not number seven on the FedEx cup rankings. You're headed off to Kapalua in a couple of weeks. Has he played there in the past? Oh, yeah.
2: He's played there, gosh, probably six or seven times, I would guess. He loves Hawaii. He loves playing in Hawaii. He and I are both thrilled to be going. It's always a great place to start your year at Kapalua, even though for us, it's probably the hardest walk we have to do all year. It's coming off of you know six weeks of sitting on our butt on the couch. So it's an interesting start for us. But yeah, obviously, I wasn't there in Mexico, unfortunately. He had added it late in his schedule, and I had had kind of a reunion scheduled at home with a bunch of friends who were coming to town. So I missed out on that one, but I was just so thrilled and so proud of him. He'd worked so hard for that. And to see him pull through was just fantastic. So yeah, we he's really struggled the last couple of years getting off to good starts and feeling like he had to play catch up, especially last year. This year, it's the exact opposite. He set himself up for a great year. Um, he's playing confidently. He's playing well. And I think he's ready to really have a great year.
1: Yeah. And he changed his ball, apparently, which he claimed set a big impact down in Mexico. He
2: did. He played the Bridgestone BXS for a long time, which is a great ball. It's actually the ball that Tiger plays. It's a little softer and a little spinnier. Um, and he went to the, the BX, which is the Bridgestone BX, which is a little firmer cover and not as spinny around the greens, but I think he hits it a little bit farther. And the ball flight was just better for him. I think he just hit it in a more boring ball flight if that makes sense, and probably got a little yeah. extra distance out of it. And, you know, it was still spun plenty for him on most of the shots. So, yeah, he's excited about this new golf ball.
1: Yeah. You were with him at the 2016 Olympics. Was that a different feeling?
2: What are your recollections? Very much so. It was so much better than I could have ever dreamed because how we got in was amazing. You had to be top 15 in the world and four from each country could go. So at the time, I think Matt was probably 19 or 20 in the world. And we're playing at Akron, which was the cutoff, or Bridgestone. So Matt Birdie chipped in on 16 for Birdie and then Birdied 18 to make him, I think we finished third or fourth. That got him enough points to get him to 15th. But then we still had to, you know, wait it out and and see if Dustin was going to go and Jordan was going to go, and they both declined to go. So we were the fourth man in behind Bubba and Patrick and Ricky Fowler. And it was in the middle of a big stretch of golf in the summer, and it was just something you're – you, didn't, you were unsure because no one knew what it was going to be like. But once you got there, I'm telling you what, it was one of the coolest things I've ever gotten to be a part of. Just the second you got there, it felt so much bigger than a golf tournament. You were at the Olympics and you didn't forget that for a second, you know, whether that be because you were finishing your rounds or your practice and, and heading and watching other events or, you know, seeing other athletes from other you know, venues come and watch the golf. It was just something so much bigger than a regular golf tournament. And obviously what Matt did on the last day to to win a medal, bronze, was made it unbelievable, but it would have been one of the most memorable weeks of my life regardless.
1: Did you cry when he was on the podium accepting
2: his medal? I'm a crier. I cried a few (laughs) times. Uh, Right when we (laughs) finished, right when a reporter asked me something about it. And anybody who knows me knows that those team events, when you're Caddying for the USA, they mean way more to me than anything else and probably more than they should. So to be a part of that at the Olympics, there was more than once I cried at the end of that. Yeah.
1: yeah. I see people on this podium for winning any, a medal for any sport. Once they start to strike up the national anthem, I'm reaching for cleaners. Sure. You know, Absolutely. <laughs> it gets me every time. I'm a
2: huge Olympics fan. So, you know, just to be a part of it was a thrill. And then to actually have him, you know, win a medal was just a dream.
1: Yeah. Any thoughts on the Ryder Cup? I know you were there.
2: You know, Ryder Cups are interesting. I think Jim did an unbelievable job for the last two years. I don't think he left. I don't think there's anything else he could have done. The bottom line is the European players played better than the American players. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, at Hazeltine a couple years ago, the American players played better than the European players. That's just what happens. I don't think there's You know, I think our team was ready. I think, you know, top to bottom, it was a strong team. And we started off, you know, I think that morning session, we were up 3-1. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing just turned around. But there's just, once the tee goes in the ground, you just got to watch them play. And that's what happened. Europe got a little momentum after the morning. In the afternoon, they played great. And then, you know, they just never looked back at that point. So... It is what it is. It is is what it
1: is. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about the personal side of John Wood. In your other life, music's really important to you. How long have you played guitar and how often do you get to practice?
2: You know, I've owned a guitar for quite a long time. It's just kind of in the last five years that I've started playing a lot and actually writing some songs and stuff like that. I practice a lot. I travel with a guitar on the road. I have a little travel guitar that I either bring with me or have, you know, one of the guys who drives the trailer around brings it around and I'll pick it up at each event. There's rarely a day goes by where I don't pick it up at some point. Usually in the mornings, it's something that I like to wake up to. I play a lot when I'm home. I mean, when I'm on the road, you know, probably a bit less, but still I, I have it with me all the time. So music, I've always been a fan. Never in a million years did I think I'd be able to, you know, write and play music. And it's never something that occurred to me. So just in the last five years, I've been able to pick some of that up. So it's been fun learning that.
1: Well, you must be serious because you have a Martin guitar, and that's a serious player's uh, guitar.
2: You know, it's kind of like an 18 handicapper having a perfectly matched set of clubs and the most offensive <laughs> driver in the world. <laughs> but I'm a big fan of a band named Wilco, and their leader, Jeff Tweedy, had his own model put out a few years back, and I kind of bought it for myself for my birthday. That was how that came about.
1: So I'm trying to figure out where your love for the replacements came from, because that really... They weren't really popular when you were younger, right? With, they,
2: were, were they? they were right in, my, in the 80s, yeah. I mean, they never got huge. They were never a huge band at all. They were kind of always on the precipice and, you know, they were kind of like the...
1: Well, alternate rock. Yeah, I mean, definitely. They were an alternative band. Yeah, exactly. they
2: always got close and managed to screw it up almost on purpose, it felt like. they were. It's just their music, what they sang about, what they wrote about just really meant a lot to me as a teenager and in my 20s and still to this day. I just loved what they wrote about that wasn't really popular to write about back then, about, you know, insecurities and tough parts of life. They didn't write, you know, sappy love songs or really political stuff. It was just, hey, this is our lives and we're middle class guys and this is what we're going to sing about. And I just it meant that stuff meant a lot to me when I was a teenager, like I said.
1: Yeah. And the amazing part is that Paul Westerberg
2: is still alive. He is. Yeah. I (laughs) I saw him twice when they were still together back before they broke up and then it's funny it's one of bones favorite bands too and we always would talk about if they ever get back together we're gonna go and it was miraculously they got back together i think in 2013 and we're gonna play only three shows and the second of those was in chicago the week of the tournament that we were there so it was kind of meant to be and it was a great night cool so you're
1: also a songwriter and you just released an album of your own songs. So can you tell us a little bit about
2: that? Yeah, like I said, it wasn't something I ever thought I'd be able to do something like that. About three years ago, I'd say, you know what, I'm going to try and sit down and actually write a song and see how it goes. I love words, I love lyrics, and I've written a lot over the years, not necessarily songs, but stories and things like that. So the lyrics were something that actually weren't that, I wouldn't say difficult, but they were easier than actually trying to figure out melodies and harmonies to put along with them. So, you know, the first song they ever wrote was a song called Lucky Then, which is the first song on the record that I just put on SoundCloud. And it still might be my favorite song. It was the first song I ever wrote. So it amazes me that I'm able to do it. It's like I said, it's you think of certain things in your life as skill sets that are kind of magic that you're never going to be able to have or, you know, being able to start writing songs and figuring out, chords and melodies and lyrics that go along with them. It's a great creative release for me. Do you start with lyrics and write a tune to suit it or or start with it? Most of the time it's lyrics first, which I think is opposite of most songwriters. Occasionally I'll come up, you know, with a chord progression and then be able to, you know, put lyrics to that. But a lot of time I'll figure out, you know, a lot of time it'll start with just one line or a title. And the whole story will just develop from that. And then I'll kind of find chords that try and fit the song. You know, if it's sure. a sad song, I'll we'll try and find those There's certain chords that just sound sad. And they kind of start in those, you know, and go from there. Do you know who Jimmy Webb is? Jimmy Webb. I do not. He wrote
1: a lot of Glenn Campbell's okay. hits, Wichita Lineman, most of Glenn Campbell's hits. But he wrote a book on songwriting. I'm going to send it to you. Okay. I've had it for years because I wrote a bunch of kid songs years ago. Fantastic. But I'll send it to you because I think you'll find it interesting. He's a good writer on top of being a good songwriter. Interesting
2: thought so, that you bring that up. Paul Westerberg actually wrote a song for Glenn Campbell in that documentary that came out. I can't remember what it's called. came out a few years ago. But Paul Westerberg wrote this. God, what was it called? I'm going to think of it here.
1: Well, stop thinking about it and you'll probably remember. Okay. All
2: right.
1: <laughs> okay. So you put on your bio that you sent me that you enjoy the outdoors and camping. Were you a Boy Scout as a kid? I wasn't.
2: It wasn't something that I got into until later in life. We didn't, my family wasn't really outdoors. We were athletic. We did a lot of sports, but we didn't do any camping or hiking and stuff like that. I kind of got into that probably in my early 20s before I started caddying. And it's just something I started doing on my own. And it's a great way to get away for me. You know, you get you're around so many people in so many situations and surrounded by people a lot. I like to, you know, get out by myself and just have a few days of peace and solitude and hiking. And it's something that I treasure, something I really need yeah. for myself.
1: Yeah. Just a few more questions, because I've kept you a long time That's this right. morning, John. You're in business for yourself. So self-motivation and focus, and these are important things to keep you on track, keep you motivated. Is there something or someone, you know, that's inspired you or continues to inspire you?
2: Yeah, that's an easy question. There's a kid in, who lives in New Jersey His name is David Finn, and he's known by a lot of guys out here as the golf fanatic. David suffers from a mitochondrial disorder, and he's in a wheelchair. He can't really communicate. He can't really speak, but he is the strongest and one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. They come, he and his dad, John, and mom, Vanessa, come to a lot of the events in the Northeast. And, you know, David puts everything in perspective. He is so thrilled to be out there watching golf. It's his favorite thing. He doesn't miss anything on the Golf Channel. It like, it's on 24 hours a day. He knows the players. He knows the caddies. He loves it. And what's great about David is, he puts things in perspective for you in a great way. You might, you know, be coming off a hole or a tournament or a round that didn't go well, and you know you're upset because you know so and so made a bogey and you didn't read a putt right, and then you come and you see David's smiling face behind one of the greens, and think about what David would give just to get out of that wheelchair and hit one golf shot. He is the biggest inspiration I've met in my entire time caddying. And I think a lot of guys out here would say the same thing. And if you haven't already, go to Facebook. He's got a Facebook page called Golf Fanatic to the Bones. And it kind of tells his story. And if you're a golf fan at all, it's something you should really look at because he's a special guy.
1: Well, it's funny you should mention his name because I interviewed Gianna Rojas from Adapted Golfers earlier this week. And she mentioned David Finn also which is a whole big topic in terms of, you know, opening up the sport of golf to people, you know, who have challenges other than, you know, what we try to get through on a daily basis. Exactly. Yep. So just a couple more questions left. How much longer do you think you're going to carry on the tour? Is there a second career in mind or either related or unrelated to golf?
2: Possibly. Right now, I still love caddying and I, you know, I think I'm physically in good enough shape to do it for another 10 years or maybe more. And that all depends on how much I'm enjoying it and you know, if I'm still successful as a caddy. But yeah, there are other possibilities. Tommy Roy from NBC and Golf Channel a few years back had me and Bones do commentating at an event on Sea Island. And I really enjoyed doing it. We did it for two days. And obviously Bones is doing that full time now. I enjoyed it immensely. And if I was ever really wanted to be done with caddying, I would definitely look into doing something like that. I like writing about it a lot too. So I could definitely see myself moving into media in some form when my caddying days are over.
1: Well, great. Maybe this will be an advertisement you for you. Go. Get some markers <laughs> after. <laughs> so my last question is this, we talked a lot about your journey into caddying, but you know, for people that really aspire to follow what you've done, is there one or couple pieces of advice you'd give someone who has that as a life goal?
2: You know, if you're really in a position where you wanted to be a caddy on the PGA Tour You know, be prepared to pay some dues these days. It's hard to get a job on the PGA Tour. Like I said, most guys bring out their own guys and teach them how to caddy. The other way is try and, you know, find your way onto the the nationwide tour and find somebody to, you know, work for a week there, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks, maybe fall into it that way. You know, like I said, most likely if you wanted to get in that, you need to play high school golf. You had to have some knowledge of golf at a competitive level. So, yeah, I would just say, you know, try and be competitive as you can for as long as you can as a player. And then uh, hopefully you've met somebody or known enough where someone might be interested in you caddying for them and you can, you know, learn at that point from that point on. And there's always
1: tackling people in parking
2: lots, <laughs> right? As a last resort. <laughs> stalking, that might hurt too,
1: but yeah. yeah. Okay, last question. Is there anything you want to plug or it something you'd like listeners to know about that we haven't covered? I
2: don't think so. I think you you had some great questions. I think we've covered everything really well, so... <laughs>
1: I really appreciate you doing this. I'm going to send you a, a Golf Yeah mug okay. that you can use for coffee or stick pens in. And I'm also going to send you that Jimmy Webb book. Fantastic. I think you'll enjoy
2: it. I love to read it.
1: Okay. And thanks again, John. This has been really great. And I'm sure people will enjoy listening to what you've told us Thank today.
0: Thank you, Gordon. It's been my pleasure.
1: Thanks okay. a lot. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to golfyad.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com.